Today, I welcome back to Mission Straight Talk, Dr. Calvin Sun, an absolutely fascinating guest who was last on Mission Straight Talk back in 2018 when he was a resident. He is now an emergency room physician and author of the recently released book, The Monsoon Diaries, A Doctor's Journey of Hope and Healing from the ER Front Lines to the Far Reaches of the World. Are you curious about his experience in the ER during COVID? And by the way, if you're not planning to become a doctor, much less an ER doctor, don't tune out. Dr. Sun is also the founder and CEO of Monsoon Diaries, a travel company that takes students and young professionals with busy schedules to all kinds of exotic adventure-filled locations around the world. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 493rd episode of Admission Straight Talk, Accepted's podcast. Thanks for joining me. Given the time of year, I'd like to highlight for today's listeners a wonderful resource if and when you're invited to a medical school interview. Except it's free download called The Ultimate Guide to Medical School Interview Success. In the guide, you learn how to prepare for interviews, including the difficult questions, how to make sure your body language matches your intent, and what is proper follow-up after your interview. Grab your free copy at accepted.com slash ultimate med IV. U-L-T-I-M-A-T-E-M-E-D-I-V and enhance your chance of acceptance. It's really hard to summarize Dr. Calvin's son's bio, but I'll try anyway. Calvin graduated from Columbia in 2008. In 2014, he graduated from SUNY Downstate College of Medicine and then began his residency in emergency medicine at Montefiore and Jacoby Medical Centers. He also was the director of resident wellness at Jacoby. In his non-existent spare time in medical school, he somehow managed to found and now runs the Monsoon Diaries, which he describes as a blog turned travel company. The Monsoon Diaries organizes flexible budget trips and has gone to over 128 countries in the past six years. He's also a filmmaker, popular speaker, and activist in the Asian American community, emergency room physician, and at one time, at least, was clinical assistant professor of emergency medicine. Dr. Calvin Sun, welcome to Admissions Straight Talk. Or I should say welcome back to Admissions Straight Talk. It's so good to be back. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for joining me. Now, you've been a little busy in the last four years, not to mention the last two, two and a half. So I'm not going to ask my usual intro questions. Listeners, I strongly recommend, I invite you to listen to exhibit.com slash 254 for the incredible story of how Calvin's son became Dr. Sun and founded Monsoon Diaries, the travel company. For now, I'd like to ask you how you came to write your just released books, the Monsoon Diaries, A Doctor's Journey of Hope and Healing from the ER Front Lines to the Far Reaches of the World. What's the story behind the book? The story is my life in a nutshell, in a show-don't-tell fashion. It can also be seen as a love letter of gratitude because it's being released at the tail end of what we hope to be the worst, the end of the worst of the pandemic. And I was approached by a literary agent two years ago, totally cold approach, January 2021, asked if I'd be interested in writing a book. And I think I spoke to you in our prior podcast episode 254 that I have this habit of writing, which mm. what caused this Monsoon Diaries blog turn into a community because I was writing live and blogging live on my travels while I was a full-time medical student. People started following along and it turned itself into a community. During the pandemic, I did the same thing. We couldn't travel during the pandemic. So it was not ethical. So I worked all the time and I blogged about it in the same way I would on a trip because it was all new territory, new frontiers. That's the only thing I knew how to do to keep myself alive when I couldn't travel. It was the next best thing. And people followed along, one of whom was a literary agent who then wanted to turn it into a book. And I said, sure, that's the attitude of, you know, why not? Uh, right. And one thing led to another. And two years later, we now have a published book by HarperCollins in bookstores since uh, September 27th. That's right. That's right. 
what do you hope people take away from the monsoon diaries? I've, I'm reading it right now. It's a short book, by the way. I just had a really, really busy week, so I haven't quite finished it. But what do you, as the author of the book, hope people take away from it? There are a few avenues, which it really depends on the reader. If you wanted to know what happened on the front lines of COVID, March to April, all the way through the lockdown into the end of the summer of 2020, you could just see it as such a simple uh, account day by day, as if you were the fly on the wall or right next to me on my shoulder. And what's unique about the way we wrote this book was everybody knows what a doctor does, but how do we think? And that's what I inject into this narrative when I talk about COVID, what was going through my head and I use a lot of different fonts and uh, different stylistic creative licenses to go into my head and also the dueling voices that a doctor may struggle with when they're facing something that's so unknown. That harkens back to what a medical student may struggle with or a resident may struggle with, this imposter syndrome. Am I ready for what's facing me right now? Something that's so unknown when lives are depending on these hands my training when I don't feel completely ready for. And that was how I felt during the pandemic. And you really get into that. And those of you who are in training right now, listening to this can identify with that. However, I don't want this to be seen as just a COVID book because I don't write just about COVID. COVID is a vehicle actually to tell a wider story about grief and loss and deriving resilience from things that already happened to you rather than searching for things external of you. So those of you who like books and not necessarily need to know what happened to COVID, I know it's, it's a hard topic to write about. People want to move on. This book is really for you as well. In fact, that's what I want to write this book for. COVID is just an example. It's a vehicle to tell a bigger story about resilience. And I, to, there are two thirds of the book where I also write about uh, one third being my father's death and how I in, just navigated through that. Uh, the lessons I learned from my father's death at a young age before I decided to go to medical school was the lessons I needed to uh, rely on to, you know, navigate through a pandemic and seeing so much death in front of me and so many other people living, losing their loved ones. And the other third being my travels, not exactly a negative thing like COVID or father's death, but it's, it's an adventure. It's something new. It was full of stress. And those of you who are familiar with my prior episode on this podcast, it was not something I signed up for, but I ended up loving it. And the irony is now I run trips for other people who already love travel more than I ever did when I first signed up. And the lessons from that, being comfortable, being uncomfortable, not really knowing yourself and being okay with that and still embracing that side of you, even if you don't know too much of it, becoming a, a, a lesson that you can harness and use for future obstacles. And that for me would be the pandemic when that finally rolled around after all my travels. And all of that coalesce into this book and these lessons. And I want for you to know that uh, this can be applied to whatever you're going through. And the journey you, of life. Yeah. When you go through your next challenge, you can look, rely on this book and say, whatever it is, a father's death, uh, travels, a trip, even something positive or a pandemic, uh, you know that you're not alone. That's absolutely true. Um, that is, there's an enormous amount of wisdom in there. Can I ask you how that connects with gratitude, which I completely agree is a it's it's not only so healthy it's such a gift to approach life with gratitude but how does how does what you just said connect to gratitude the very moment here right now those of you who are listening right now the words that we're speaking right now this connection that we're having this discussion mm -hmm. whether it's you asking the questions you listening to my answers those are investments into the future your future is now the best Thing you can do to invest in the future is give all you can give in the present moment. And that's gratitude, knowing that every waking moment, every passing minute that you have on this planet right now is an opportunity for gratitude. And you are only able to realize that when you also see that you're here because of all the things that got you to where you are right now. And those are the things that happened in the past. And that includes all the terrible things, all, all the, the challenges. Things all the challenges, things that you thought that will never change. And what I want the reader to understand is that there are plenty of things that have happened in our past lives, whether it's the loss of a loved one, a rejection, the loss of a job, something traumatic, something that you thought will never 
change. These discrete events will never change. And you think at the time, it's going to stay with you for the rest of your life. It will. But what's remarkable when I wrote this book, and I want the reader to appreciate from showing that talent, I'm not going to tell it to you, I hope you just feel it, is that even though that event won't change, and we'll take the pandemic as an example, that's never going to leave us, our attitudes to that event can change and evolve as long as you are brave and courageous enough to be willing to revisit it over and over and over again, to sit with the feelings, label them, let them pass through, and rather than trying to ignore them and overcome, to in the, in the sense of trying to overcome it, ignore and try to move on, revisit it, honor it, go through the process of grief in a brave sense, to create those brave spaces so that it finally can leave you and let go in a more holistic, organic way. And that way, when you think of them again, your attitudes to that event that once had tormented you is now some of a comfortable friend that guides you to overcome challenges in the present and the future. And then when Strength it comes to the you. future, that's, you know that you already are investing in that right now. Right. In reading the book, it seemed like you felt first responders and healthcare workers were almost sacrificed during the pandemic. They were, they were not given enough PPE. They didn't have the right equipment. Do you think the healthcare system is any better prepared for a pandemic or some kind of horrible mass casualty event than it was in 2020? Absolutely not. We're not. We didn't learn a thing. <laughs> no. I think we may have a few more sources of PPE, but that's a Band-Aid on the fundamental root cause of a healthcare system that was bound to collapse. If you ask me, the healthcare system did collapse. We had to ration care in a developed country like the United States of America in the year 2020, you know, there were ambulances that refused to pick up cardiac arrest cases because there was too many. Hmm. That means if you had a heart attack or you dropped dead, you know, you'd be put on the line and they may not take you if they couldn't get your pulse in the field to take you to a hospital where we could probably save you because the hospitals were full. It was understandable right. at the time. And, you know, we don't think, I don't think the, the structures are in place uh, that creates a sustainable same change that if this were to happen again, we wouldn't repeat the same mistakes because we are, we have been. Monkeypox was a, was a temporary scare right now, but like when it first exploded in the past couple of months, I mean, people still couldn't find a way to get access to care or understanding how to test or, you know, even getting a vaccine that's more than 30, 40 years old. <laughs> right. All right. Now, one of the things you did, and you, you mentioned it a little bit earlier in the in the podcast, but in the book, you frequently talk about how you were very active on social media during the pandemic. And I think that's how the your book agent found you, right? You were talking about blogging, but I from the book I sensed it was it wasn't just the blog, it was it was more than that. I don't know exactly which social media you were using, whether it was LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, Twitter, whatever. What motivated you to be so active at that time? Was it just as you said? a replacement for the blogging and social media uh, reporting that you did when you were traveling and in essence, you were on a journey. What was it's the habits. impact of your social media initiative? It, it's, it was just habits. I, I knew what has, it's like brushing your teeth. You know mm -hmm. that brushing teeth is good for you, but there are some nights you come home late after socializing with friends, the bed looks very tempting and you just, maybe it's just, I'll, I'll just skip one night. Uh, sometimes people even want to change their pajamas. I'll just sleep in my clothes. But you know there is something part of you that will stop that temptation and make you somehow go through the motions of brushing your teeth, changing out of your clothes into your pajamas, and going to bed normally, even though your brain has said, I don't want to do this. Just, just one night. You, maybe you're too tired, too lazy. There, these habits compel you to do things when your will falters. And there's just, they're so powerful. There's nothing bigger than the small things. And I had a habit of writing during medical school and writing during my travels during medical school to show others that I was able to do it. I was able to travel to now, you know, it was I think 120 countries during uh, 60 countries during medical school, 70 during residency. And I've been to 50 more since. So it's about wow. yeah, 200 countries and territories in the last 10, 12 years. And I didn't start traveling until I was 23. Didn't start medical school until I was 25. And that th these are these are all habits they all add up over time every trip was like this is the last one i'm gonna do <laughs> and then every time i came back i was like well i there may be an opportunity for another one and as soon it became a habit there are many times when i was in an airplane and i was not happy i was like i'd rather be at home in my bed you know with a full weekend 
instead of going on another trip that I promised to myself I would do a month prior. But I'm always a man of my word. And when it comes to following through my promises, I always follow through. And those are habits as well. So being on the trip, writing about it and putting it on social media so that other people can be inspired and also live their lives and knowing that they can do it too. Or even reach out to me and ask for me to take them along on my trips, which I'm happy to do. That also became a habit. By the time COVID came around, that was the adventure I didn't sign up for. But it was want. new. I didn't want it. I still don't want it. I wish it never happened. But you can't change that. We just talked about that. It's discrete events. You can't change that. But my attitude towards COVID, as much as I hate the pandemic and hated what it done to me and my family and my loved ones and all the people I, you know, all my patients, my attitude towards it is I is a one of active acceptance. Before it was resignation, it was despair, it was despondency, but now it's active acceptance. It happened. I can't change it. Attitude towards it changed uh, in that it inspired me to keep writing when I wasn't traveling. And that's something I wasn't used to. And by posting often about learning new things about the virus as it unfolded and patient, how they presented themselves, or even the big picture of how you know patient flow was ebbing and flowing during the different phases of the pandemic, people coming looking for tests and they were fine. Then people coming looking for tests and they weren't fine. People coming looking for tests and now we finally had tests when they, the last two weeks we did it, but now they're not fine. And then admitting them to the hospital and where they're going to go if they are staying in the hospital. Then the hospital's full. Then the emergency room became a, a de facto admissions center and they, a, a area. And then they can't get anywhere. And then what are the people in the waiting room? People are dying in the waiting room. And those things kept people a good understanding why it was important to stay home at the time. There's a tornado mm-hmm. outside. Let me tell you what the tornado looks like. I'm the one inside the tornado. You don't need to step outside to confirm that. Stay inside and stay safe. But once the tornadoes are over, when I finally, finally blogged about or posted about how the tornado is over, the sun is shining, it's June, you can go outside now. There's no need to stay home. You know, the virus doesn't spread outdoors. These are things that I'm learning. Uh, that, that also resonated with my uh, people that are reading and we were able to guide each other. It wasn't just me. It was also the responses I got from my community uh, to guide each other where they were from because I'm not, I can't be everywhere. I wish I were, it seems like that. But people are on the West Coast around the world also telling me what they're seeing. I was posting that too, to get to where we are today, where we can now rebuild and look forward. If I, if I understood correctly from your book, you had impact in terms of sharing with colleagues techniques that seem to be working. For example, the fact that perhaps being prone was better than being on your back. You were also alerting people not to go to the emergency room unless it was absolutely necessary and what absolutely necessary meant. Could you share a few more of the impacts that you, that you had with your social media posting? So it was so shocking to me how common sense was not uh, being utilized by public common health authorities. Common sense isn't common. It's not common. Public health authorities did not take the initiative to warn people that emergency rooms were the, were the most dangerous places to be in the beginning of a pandemic. They did so after the fact, which I was very appreciative, but that was already a month in. I didn't start seeing commercials for that until three to four weeks in. Maybe it's a production value thing. But it's very easy just to go on the air and just say it, which yeah. I did the first week because I was in the emergency room. And it just was it was like World War Z where Brad Pitt just kind of like can tell like all the people take seven seconds from a bite to turn into a zombie. I mean, that's very easy to notice. But if someone actually took the time to pay attention, he somehow did. And I, in the first week, was just 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 seeing patients come into the emergency room asking for a test that did not exist, but realizing that if there were getting, trying to get tested for a disease that could be spread so easily through the air or droplets, why were they coming to the only best place for a disease to manifest? And that would be the emergency room. If you have no symptoms and you're coming to a place that you, that you think that is the only place that would have tests for something that you may have, when you have no symptoms, you might leave with a party favor you may never have wanted, whether it's viral dose exposure or viral load. You already may have it, but then you're giving it to other people in the emergency room who are there for different reasons and now have it. So you're harming other people. But then as the disease spread even further beyond the emergency room in the second week, then I thought about the people who may have caught it on the subways or on the bus or on their way to the emergency room, or maybe they never had it and then they got tested and on their way out, somebody coughs in their face and then they get it. And then there's thinking about the test itself. Let's say we actually all had all those tests. Those tests at the time in March and April took two days to result. Right. 
So right. you'll get a phone call two days later saying you're negative, but that's what your status was when you got swapped two days ago. What about the two days since that you didn't stay at home or that you remember somebody may have coughed at you after the test on your way out or you, you touched the doorknob and then wiped your face as you left the emergency room after your test. Right. You get a phone call two days later, you're negative, right? That was before the doorknob. That was before someone coughed on you. So then you what? celebrate and hug grandma and then give her the virus. And then the next thing you know, you just put her on life support three weeks later. Wow. So that's what I all saw in the first week. It just visualized it came out to me. So I just, I just wrote about it. And I was surprised that, you know, I was considered one of the fewer people to have talked about in the first week. It wasn't until the third or fourth week when I think people caught on why the emergency room was a dangerous place to get your tests. And that's why stay home became a hashtag. Right, right. Yeah, and then the book conveys very well the, um, and tension isn't even strong enough enough word for, for those first few weeks of the pandemic, just the, the sheer unknown. I think terror in some respects is a better word for it. Yeah. But um, let's leave COVID for a bit. I think we're exhausted that one. I got a little sassy with a terrified in my book. I oh, try yeah? to give it some levity. I mean, I guess if you keep reading, there's some, uh, Lisa Ling, the journalist at uh, CNN, uh, yeah. wrote my foreword, and she loved that there was a sense of urgency to my writing and how oh, much yeah. terror there was, but she also appreciated the levity and sassiness. I, uh, Definitely sassy. Yeah, yeah. I haven't gotten the levity part. But I haven't gotten the levity part. And I think, again, I, I think for anybody considering emergency medicine, this is, this is just a must read. And for those interested in your perspective as you're laying it out here. It's very well written. It's not long. I would definitely recommend it. I'm glad I'm reading it. Written by an emergency medicine doctor. So we don't want it long. No, no, I guess not. I guess not. Are you glad you went into emergency medicine? Absolutely. Why? No, I have, I have, I could say that, but then I thought about it for a quick millisecond there. And yeah. Why or why not? What's the pros? What's the cons? I, I get to I get to speak here with you. If I didn't choose emergency medicine, I don't know if I would be here on a podcast with you on my I second episode. I suspect you do something else really interesting, Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hope I hope I would, but that's not the deck of cards I was dealt. I, emergency medicine, as I said in the last episode with you, was the closest thing to bartending I could think of, and I loved <laughs> bartending. I still love it. I, still love I remember serving. that. I had just a few drinks. Uh, friend, uh, I served last night for the first time in months. I haven't made a drink in months. And my friend stopped by and made her a drink. She's like, oh, she loved it. Oh, it brought me so much joy. It's just like someone coming to emergency room and they don't know what they have. And, you know, most of the times we may not get it, but we at least do something that makes them feel better. And man, it, 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 it's fulfilling because you get your initial, immediate results. Sure, people who criticize emergency medicine say, well, you never follow up. You actually never find out what they really, really have. And you, you don't know, maybe whatever they have takes years. And that's very gratifying, fulfilling. But I like small victories. I like how to, I like saying how there's nothing bigger than the smallest of things. I need the small victories. I need to go home every night knowing that I made a difference and I feel fulfilled. Is it, does it come from a sense of insecurity, the need for validation from my childhood? Hey, guess what? That's in my book too. I write about that. <laughs> That's the cons right? the, of emergency medicine. I guess, I, what do I say? The best of something is always the worst of something. The pros and cons of emergency flip medicine. Side. Yeah, it's, it's very fast. It's very fast paced. You may never figure out what that person has, but at least you'll get a little bit of a sense of gratification uh, with the small victories you get with your immediate life-saving maneuvers or techniques or the, the tests that you do are done much more quickly. The results you get are much more, uh, uh, much more expedient. So they have an answer. At least I mean, they may not know what they have, but they can go home with a reassurance knowing what they don't have. Right. And that also adds up. And so I totally get it. The cons is you never know what they really have. You got to keep moving. You got to keep moving. And, you know, they may, they may feel like a treadmill, a hedonistic treadmill. But I explore that in my book where I try to see if it doesn't come from the sense of need for validation after my father's death. Right. And you also, I mean, I think the goal in, in the emergency room is to stabilize somebody so that they can get to somebody else who can figure out what's really wrong or send them oh, yeah. home if they don't need further care or something. Is, is that true? Or Yeah. I read in my book how it's like time travel. If you're a big sci-fi geek nerd and you love time travel movies, emergency medicine is time travel. You are controlling time. They came into something where if before modern medicine or before emergency or if your emergency didn't exist, they would have minutes left to live. Let's say, okay, that's a little dramatic. How about an hour, one hour left to live? Somebody stabs them. They have an hour left to live. They're bleeding out. If emergency medicine didn't exist, if ERs didn't, weren't there or modern medicine was there, they would have died. 
in the whole scheme of humanity, of natural mm-hmm. selection. But we now live in a world where emergency medicine does exist, where we take that hour that you have left. And because we're there, we get to turn that hour into six hours because we just gave you blood. We stopped the bleeding. We look for other sources of trauma. We gave you medicine to feel better. We stabilize your vital signs with you know, medicine so that you don't exsanguinate and hemorrhage all over. And we stop the bleed by finding the source even and uh, suturing it or stapling it. And then we call down our colleagues from upstairs who are busy in the middle of their elective surgeries or their you know, patients that they've known for years to once they finish and wrap that up, we hold them, you know, we let them know, we hold them accountable. But in the meantime, we are stabilizing and stretching that one hour to six hours. We may not be the one to take the bullet out or open the chest up. And we still do some of that too, but right. we got to keep seeing new patients. But we take that six hours now where they have the time to come downstairs, take you to the operating room upstairs in a much cleaner environment, and then sedate you fully, actually get you back to 100%. And then as we're seeing more people, we're taking, the t- maybe you come in for something that will kill you in five days, a tick bite, you know, or, you know, a snake bite or a hyperbar- something that needs a hyperbaric chain, carbon monoxide poisoning. Something feels a little off. And I ask you one question. You found out that you left the gas stove the whole, on, the, the whole time. I take those five days and I turn into weeks, two weeks so that because I decide to admit you to the hospital and they work out the poison out of your body. And then weeks become months and months become years. And then you get to live again. That's time travel. That's time manipulation. That's amazing. That's absolutely. That must be extraordinarily gratifying too. Speaking it, of gratitude, speaking of gratitude. It is so, I'm so grateful, but it, it's, it's conversations like these that we are having, Linda, that makes me grateful because unfortunately the cons is that in emergency medicine, you don't have the time to think about these things. So most of my colleagues don't have the time to take a deep breath because they're so busy trying to do time manipulation. They're not even realizing they're manipulating time and doing all these amazing things because there's also the plenty of drunks and people who are abusing the system who don't need to be there looking for tests that don't exist during a pandemic that also uh, you know, deflate us. But when we stop to write, not everyone's going to write a book, but to just write in general or to have conversations like these on a podcast, which I'm so grateful to have the opportunity doing, Thank that you. allows me to channel gratitude in a more holistic sense. What, what should M3s or M4s or even pre-meds thinking of emergency medicine realize about the field other than the time travel that you've been so articulate about before entering the field what do they they should they be thinking about that you didn't think about before you entered the field or that they don't commonly think about i believe that emergency medicine is going to change by the time they apply in about two to three years because of the pandemic uh there are things that you should be wary about in terms of is it going to be working for a hospital system or a physician group? Uh, and that's always an amorphous, a moving target. No one can really predict for sure. But the ultimate bottom line is that there will always be emergencies and there will always be payment for your expertise in emergencies. <gasps> so the job security is on the long run is going to be just fine. In the immediate sense, it's going to be a little nerve wracking. But you can say the same for every single medical specialty. You can say that for every single job out there. So you might as well just, if you're scared of what you are hearing about emergency medicine, you might as well just move to a deserted island and hunt (laughs) or harvest coconuts because no job is secure post-pandemic in an economy recovery during the middle of what looks like to be the next World War III, hopefully not. You don't know. And the yeah. best thing you can, but you can rely on the fact that at least with emergency medicine, since that's the question, is that there always will be emergencies and there always will be people that need you during emergencies. So you will have a skill, you will learn a skill that is forever investable, forever that will pay back dividends, whether it's for not just a job or job security, which is, I think, great in my experience, but also for your loved ones and for yourself and understanding uh, the world, the chaotic world that is around you. These skills that you learn in emergency medicine transcend just your job. It applies to everything else and how you see the world and you know, derives an order to this other, you know, otherwise chaotic place and universe. I have a friend whose son went into emergency medicine and I asked her recently how, how he likes it. And she said he liked it much more when he first got into it. 
since then he's married, he's had a couple of kids. And she said he, he loved the fast pace when he was younger. Now he sometimes feels like he has to decompress before he walks in the door to his wife and two young children. Do you ever feel like that? Like it's almost too much? Or did you ever feel yeah. like that during the pandemic in particular? I wrote a memoir that, that required a year <laughs> of decompression okay. after a pandemic. But, and I get it. You know, he, he needed to compress after a really tough shift. I needed to compress after a pandemic of very, very tough shifts that were happening daily. The work-life balance was skewed during the pandemic. I usually recharge through travel. That is the way I fill my cup. And, you know, a lot of people do gym, yoga, hanging out with friends, going to Vegas, going to ski trip. For me, it was to leave on a Friday, come back on a Sunday on an international trip, looking for the cheapest flights, hack fares, and then bringing people along to make it sustainable. And I think that it paid off dividends. It was an investment where I'm so grateful to having had those experiences and adventures that during a pandemic, when I couldn't travel, I was able to relive those experiences through my photos and my blog posts at the time. Uh, and, and those are the things that are getting me by. However, ultimately, I wasn't actually traveling. So I lost my source for decompression, the, this ultimate decompression. And, you know, having a lockdown didn't help. So I couldn't hang out with friends or socialize with loved ones. And that does build up over time where now I have been spending the last year, not only writing this book, but, you know, thankfully, that was a really good excuse to also work fewer shifts. And I'm actually happy that happened. I don't miss it as much as I thought it would because I already had enough, a lifetime worth of it during the pandemic. So normally ER doctors as attendings, once you're done with all your training, we work about 10 to 11 shifts per month. That's full-time, which is great. That means 20 days off as quote unquote weekends without having to use your vacation time. So those of you who are thinking about it, that's awesome. 10 to 12 shifts a month. And during the pandemic, I worked about 35 shifts the first month and a half. Yeah. Yeah. I worked three months worth of shifts. In, when you talk about uh, shifts, they're 12 hour shifts, right? They're 12 to 16 hour shifts. Whoa. Yeah. And uh, the shortest being 10. Sometimes mm -hmm. I do four in one place, eight, another place. I would do two shifts in two different places in a single day. I wrote about that in the book and I'm just like, I'm yeah. going crazy, but at least the, I, I was a per diem. I am a per diem doctor by choice, which means I get to choose different hospitals to work in. So I was, I think I was, that, that got me by because I had uh, not only my travel blog uh, to read from, to feel like I was traveling again, to decompress, but I also was working different sites a lot, yeah. which for me was a, a source of decompression, not the other way around. A lot of people think that's stressful because they learn different systems. No, I got to, you know, meet new friends or, you know, catch up with you know, people that missed me from the last shift was like a month ago. Every site was new. So I had different food to you know, take and order from new neighborhoods to like, oh, I've never been here in a while. It, it, that to me, that's, that's what I derive some satisfaction. Some people may feel that that's too much, but I liked it. And number three was I was choosing to go in. Being a per diem means you get to choose whatever shifts you want. So the autonomy of saying I came in, not because some scheduler told me to go in, but I chose to go in also was very helpful, but still that was only so much until the pandemic really like almost broke all of us. And so I'm taking, you know, a step back, not because I burnt out, but because I don't burn out, I'm still working. I'm still working a lot, but I'm not working as intensely as I used to before the pandemic because I know what my limits are uh, and I don't want to ever meet those limits because, you know, I've, it's the pandemic. That's it. That I, I don't want to need to go back there again if I don't have to. Then it becomes, you know, sadomasochism and, you know, that's, you can't pour from an empty cup and help up other people when you become no. self-masochistic. Right. What's the picture behind you? That's the iron ore train in Mauritania. I took this photo three years ago as the sun was setting, the stars were coming out. And I was on this, uh, this train that carries iron ore from the center of Mauritania to the coast. And it's hitchhiking. So there's no admission fees. You just hop on, hop off. And it was 13 hours on this train before we got off to go camping in the desert. And it's just one of those things like a Mecca for adventure travelers when the National Geographic profiled it uh, as a special, like in 2018. Uh, locals use it as a form of transportation to get from the coast into the central tribes that they're from to deliver food, medicine, and vice versa. And we, you know, hitched a line a lot, a ride along with them. It's great because no one needs to take care of you. No one needs to look out for you. It's you know, it's not something that people have to bend over backwards to 
you know, ensure your safety, you do it on your own as if you never existed. And the anonymity that we enjoyed being on this train was very cathartic. Glad to have experienced it before the pandemic. Wow. Yeah. That leads right into the, we've talked about the Monsoon Diaries, your book. Now, what about the Monsoon Diaries, the company you founded? Was this trip part of a Monsoon Diary trip? Yes, it was. Every trip I do is considered a, a Monsoon Diaries trip, whether I go out alone and blog travel solo, which is now super rare, uh, or, or more often, people just start showing up and joining me along for the ride. And every trip I announce, I'm grateful to always have someone sign up and show up at the airport, just like Forrest Gump running around the country. Really? Wow. He runs for himself, and then he turns around, there's other people with him, and that's what the Monsoon Diaries what are some of the trips you have planned now that the world is opening up again and travel is becoming safe? So I just finished a monsoon a few weeks ago at the Faroe Islands. Uh, it was the nine of us. Where is that? Where is that? Uh, that is the, it's pretty much Iceland on steroids without the tourists. It's a set of islands between Iceland and Scotland. And it's beautiful. So people just Google Faroe Islands, F-A-R-O-E islands and the pictures are breathtaking but not only that so few people know about it and it's so easy to get to uh so few people know about it there are no tourists there so you have you feel like you have it all to yourself and it's a quick flight from copenhagen denmark or Reykjavik, iceland and so so that's a trip you just took yeah that was a few weeks ago and then though i'm grounded for the book uh, as the publisher would like me to stay stick around us for any opportunities to do any book signings or book tours and just to see how it does. And then I have a trip coming up in November to the Galapagos and one in December to Senegal, Gambia, Guinea-Bissau, West Africa. That's open invite for anyone who's interested. Wow. And then next year, February will be Burkina Faso. March Where is be, that? That is in Central West Africa. So West Africa, but not on the coast, right south of Mali and above Togo, Benin, Cote d'Ivoire. And that will be for just three to four days. A march will be South Sudan into maybe South Korea. Uh, South Sudan is only for three days, so I might as well just keep going in a certain direction. Uh, May will They're be- They're next door to each other, as I recall. They're next door, sure. Great. <laughs> People have been clamoring for me to do a trip in South Korea, so I, I have to listen to my community. And I also need to explore it like fully for myself rather than a, like a 24-hour layover in Seoul. Uh, that was that doesn't do it justice. Right. May is East Africa, and July may be Greek island hopping, and Belgium, and then August is Papua New Guinea. Wow, that's all over. That's amazing. Yeah. Let's go with the flow. Can you can you give a favorite trip or a most beautiful place or most like beautiful? Asking you to name a favorite child. Yeah, exactly. That's what I say. How can you choose favorite favorites among children? But I can do superlatives. Most beautiful is Greenland, Antarctica, Namibia, and I would say recently I was in Svalbard and Faroe Islands, and they're up there, but definitely those, those three by far. Okay. Most fun is Cuba. Most magical is New Zealand. Wow. The region I just find myself going back to over and over and over again is South Asia, so Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Nepal. Uh, I have yet to go to Bhutan, so that's my last place for that area. The most uh, fascinatingly weird and interesting is North Korea, Myanmar. I went in 2010 before all this went down. Uh, North Korea, Myanmar, and Turkmenistan. The most underrated uh, is Slovenia. It was like the most surprising. The best food is Iran, Spain, and Japan. And the most convenient, but still adventurous, like the opposite extremes where I could turn my brain off because it's so easy, but it's also the most, you know, adventurous in that it's not that easy uh, is Japan. Fascinating. Wow. Is there anything you would have liked me to ask you? Anything that you anything think you want to say at this point in terms of your, the, the emergency room, the book, COVID, travel the monsoon diary book the monsoon diary travel community oh i know i had one one of the questions yeah. how long are most of your trips and i assume that's one of the advantages of being a per diem doctor you can batch your work and batch your trips right however long that you want them to be 
Really? It, you, it's, it's ad hoc. Uh, and we prorate the cost for however long you're there. And you can come in the middle, leave in the middle. Uh, you can come for the whole thing, which usually is about a week. Um, our longer ones are about two to three weeks. And our shortest ones are sometimes a 24 to 48 hour turnaround. We leave wow. on Friday, come back on a Sunday. And they so they're really depends. for young professionals and students. I mean, that's it's the... for everybody though. We are taking every, like we just had a yacht week trip last year in September in Sardinia and Corsica and yacht week is essentially spring break for adults or burning man on water. And we've had, you know, two people above their, above in their sixties uh, join us and, you know, they with families and kids, but they left the kids behind and joined us and they had tons of fun. And, you know, it, it really, emotion knows no age limits and we don't have any age limits that we will join. So we're happy to have you. We have a lot of mother daughter uh, combos come join us. Uh, we haven't had any father sons, which some reason, but a That's lot of mothers come along with, and they bring their daughters and it's been a lot of fun to have them. So the more the merrier. All right. So I'm going to ask one more time, any, any closing words, anything you would have liked me to ask you? I please go out there and pick up a copy of my book, The Monsoon Diaries. I really do not want this to be seen as a COVID-only book if those of you are reluctant or buying it for that reason, because it's really a book about what you can do with your life when you have no idea what you're doing, that to be comfortable with the uncomfortable. And those of you who are stuck at the crossroads listening to this and wondering, like, I want this life or I want a life that's kind of like this, or, you know, how do I make it my own life? Or am I, I'm not sure if I'm applying to this because my parents want me to, or do I want to? Either way, stasis, sitting with your feelings, all that is very valuable, but life keeps moving. And in order to be comfortable with that motion uh, is to be comfortable with staying and taking a breath and seeing, you know, where, where do you begin? And a lot of times the answer is not knowing to say, I don't know. And when that happens, if you could feel very lonely and my story out there is really for those of you who need to that reassurance to know that you're not alone, that I am only here now because I felt comfortable with staying with the uncomfortable. It's still uncomfortable. Don't get me wrong. I just had to embrace it rather than try to look away from it and still go through the motions of applying and, you know, doing my best, but with the expectations that I may not be, you know, meant for this, or I'm not may get, be able to get in there, but, you know, just surrounding myself with so many people who believed in me more than I ever did allowed me to realize that the, 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 the goal is not what matters. What you become doesn't really matter so much than the journey and the, what you learn on the way to get there. Had I not traveled, had I just embraced medical school and just applied for it, had my dad still been alive and just did it, I still would have been a doctor. I'd still probably be on this podcast talking to you, but we wouldn't be talking about a book or my travels. I would just talk about the nuts and bolts of how to apply to medical school, things that we've talked about in the beginning of the podcast. Everybody knows what a doctor does. You don't need that. You can look up it in a textbook. But what yeah, but I think more- one of the things that comes through clearly in the book is, is kind of something you mentioned that there's, there might be lots of imposter syndrome. There might be many times, especially in emergency medicine, when it's not obvious what you should do. Exactly. It's exactly. And, and you, you talked several times in the book about embracing the fear. There was fear. Am I doing the right thing? Am I not doing the right thing? I don't know what I'm doing. Exactly. It's not, it's not so much what you become. It's how you become it, how you think and how you, how, what the, what the, the, the thought process and even embracing the, the dilemmas that, that go on your brain and being comfortable with it, it illustrates the kind of person you are. As we go through life, are changing attitudes to a discrete things is what I think defines a person. And it, I kind of liken that to a roller coaster. We don't need to know what the roller coaster is. I don't need to know there are three loops, five drops, you know, a G force here and left. Just enjoy the roller coaster. It, it may not feel comfortable, especially if it's your first roller coaster, but you know that one day you'll look back and say, well, I'm glad I went on that. Just trust the process. And this book illustrates that no matter how uncomfortable you are, wherever you are in your process, I hope this book provides some kind of solace and familiarity to you to know that you're not alone. And I'm right there with you being a fly on your wall, sitting next to your shoulder, going through what you're going through and knowing that you will get to where you need to be. Uh, You just don't need to know what it looks like. Just invest all you can in the present. I think the the book is all that, but I want to point out something to you that um, 
as a as a non-medical person i i got from the book and that was just your commitment to service you knew you knew that there was risk to your health and serious risk to your health by going in day in and day out and you still did it and that was the same thing with every other healthcare person or first responder and that was clearly a fear that you had it was very obvious in the book that you were concerned about it and you were really ticked that you didn't have the PPE and you didn't have the, the masks and the, and the appropriate material to protect yourself, but you still did it. So that commitment to service, which first of all, I and everybody else listening should be very appreciative of is one thing. But I, I think that that's something that, that clearly comes through the book and you are very modestly not, not highlighting it, but that's something that every doctor is is doing every first first person responder every nurse every janitor in a hospital they're all doing it thank you it it means more to me than you know hearing that and it's hard because you i i mentioned this book as well during your medical training we're so accustomed to making a habit of putting and advocating our patients before us the wounded warrior mentality where we sacrifice our youth to learn all this material, to you know, stay up late hours in the night, to take care of the sick and dying, some of who are, will not be awake and be aware who's taking care of them or even know who to thank when they leave the hospital uh, or may not be even you know, happy that they're there and may reject our efforts to care for them. And we you know, have to determine capacity and whether they can decide that all that, we do all that, that work, that thinking knowing that the thank you is not what we're looking for at the end of the day. And that becomes a habit. So to hear you say that is so uncomfortable and I have to be comfortable with it because that's my mantra. Uh, right. To, yeah, to you know, be I, I also can express gratitude. <laughs> yes, you can. And I really much appreciate it. I'm grateful for that. Thank you. And I, 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 that, that the dedication to service is something I didn't, I, I, you know, I don't want to say it it's, because I couldn't describe it. I mean, it's like, how do I describe loving someone? You don't, say that you love them. I mean, you should say that often, but sometimes you just know you are in love with them, that you know Mm -hmm. that you love something. You don't need to say it because it goes beyond words. And there was this energy that was compelling to go in over and over and over again uh, during the pandemic when I knew I didn't have to. As a per diem doctor, I was actually so grateful going into the pandemic saying, oh, if I just don't want to work because it just gets a little dangerous, I can just choose not to work that day. But right now I can do it because it doesn't look to be so bad. But then by the time mid-March and late March came around, I was finding myself working all the time. And I'm like, I promised myself not to do this, but I can't help but to go in. And then when someone asks me, it's like, why are you doing this? You don't have to be here. You're per diem. No one's telling you to go in. I, I, the, only, the first thought of me is like, isn't this what love is, I guess? Like you just, it's a temporary form of insanity. Like you, 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 you put yourself in harm's way for the better of something, some higher thing. Uh, the emotion that you can't explain, whether it's for another person or a calling or, you know, a, a profession, a commitment, or a commitment. Yeah. and it's not, it doesn't make sense until you look back and you realize how it connects and you say like, oh, this is the person I was, not this the is selfish, the person you became. Yeah. Not the selfish per diem doctor who says, oh, I'm just going to work for myself. Uh, you surprise yourself. And that's the beauty of life, the changing attitudes to the very same job, to the very same challenges my attitude towards my own, the way I see my profession changed after the pandemic. And I needed to write about that. And, you know, it's to this day, I'm still struggling to explain it, but the book comes pretty close. You know, that's, that's what, you know, service is. I had, I I can close it. I had a friend who came by and and she asked me, why do you do all this? And I'm like, you remember me from college and high school. Uh, I was this insecure brat, you know, I was insecure. My dad died when I was young. I was parentless. And I, you know, finished my last two years of college, like, yearning for validation and I was insecure because you know no one you know was at home to make me feel good and I you know I I didn't mind that I was actually embracing my insecurity because it gave me the energy to feel to like do service for other people making me feel good you know the baby in the well argument those of you who are students philosophy students know that one like am I taking care of this because it makes me feel good or because it's the right thing to do and then she was just like you know it's okay to let go of that insecurity do the work to let it go don't hold on to it as like oh this is my only way to be a good person once you let go of that insecurity, you might actually find yourself still doing those things, but actually enjoying it just for the sake of the act of service. This is the higher, higher calling. So we're, you, you, be, you might be able to surprise yourself. And she was right. I Wonderful. am very grateful to her.
to be able to see that more than I had seen that in myself, which is a running theme of my life. Wonderful. It's a great note to close on. Calvin, I think we're just about out of time. Where can listeners find you online and learn more about the Monsoon Diaries, both the excellent book and the travel community? I'll try to keep it simple. It's the name of the book.com, monsoondiaries.com, without the the. So M-O-N-S-O-O-N-D-I-A-R-I-E-S.com. You can also follow me on social media on my Instagram, instagram.com slash monsoondiaries. The same goes for Facebook, the handle is Monsoon Diaries, as well as Twitter, Monsoon Diaries. And they all lead to the same place. And I am responsive to messages. I read everything. And I look forward to hearing your feedback. And hopefully my story and my book out there touches someone and motivates them to live their best life, no matter how dark of a space they're in right uh, then. I'm right there with you. I have been there with you. And I'm happy to help you navigate and guide you through that space to a better tomorrow. Wonderful offer. Thank you again. We're going to link to the Monsoon Diaries, both the book and the travel company, which I think are actually available at the same website, as well as to other resources related to this podcast. And you can find it all at accepted.com slash 493. Listener, thank you too for joining Dr. Calvin Sun and me for Mission Straight Talks 493rd episode. If you find the show worthwhile, I have a favor to ask. Please tell your friends about the podcast. Your doing so helps us spread the news about Mission Straight Talk and your friends will appreciate the tip too. Quick reminder, grab your copy after you finish reading the Monsoon Diaries, or maybe before, grab your free copy of the Ultimate Guide to Medical School Interview Success at exhibit.com slash ultimate med IV and do it today. Thanks again for coming. This is Admission Straight Talk produced by Accepted, and I am your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week. <music>